Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to The Game, the football podcast from The Times. I am Max Rushton, a controversial signing, the Sol Campbell of podcasts. Uh, I've been pleased with the favourable reaction. James Shepard on Twitter, when it was announced, said, Max, the one man more insufferable than Gav Marcotti, uh, which is the inspiration I need. Fortunately, we have a tried and tested panel who will hopefully ease the pain. Tony Cascarino is here. Next in my script, it says, Julien Laurent, nice to meet you. Julien is not here, is he? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> basically Rory Smith where are you I'm in Settle in the Yorkshire Dales in fact okay does anybody know where Julien is um no alright coming up we will discuss conspiracy theories and managerial vacancies we'll look back at 2014 and look forward to 2015 Let's start at the Etihad. Manchester City 2, Burnley 2. Tony Cascarino. I, I watched that game and I thought Burnley have proved that all you need mm. is a big lump up front with a good touch. So I look to you and say, do you, do you agree with that? Well, the lad Barnes, who you're obviously talking about, Ashley Barnes, is um, someone that some home fans, you know, and I think even Sean Dice mentioned it, that, you know, wouldn't have been too pleased with. But boy, did he play a role in their comeback. And fair play, City were there for the taking, in the, certainly in the second half. And um, Ings' performance was brilliant for me. He just ran it for everything, and he just grinded the City back four down. Didn't get rewarded with a goal, but certainly the part he played for Burnley to get back into the game. And, you know, lad Barnes, what a, what a story for him, because everyone thinks he's not good enough for the Premier League. And he goes to the Etihad, a bit like Conor Wickham last year. Mm-hmm. I, I felt Conor Wickham was thrown in at the deep end because Gosport thought they were going down. So he thought he'd look at players for the championship to see and they end up getting a big result. Barnes has come in and done a similar thing, got a you know a really good goal. And it's a massive point for Burnley. It really is. Against a City team and we know of just one game after game in recent weeks. That that's gotta be really worrying though, surely, that if you're if you're Man City and suddenly the Etihad becomes the place where strikers who you think <laughs> might be good enough for the championship prove themselves. That's terrifying for Manchester City. I'm I'm a bit embarrassed about City because I saw them at West Brom on Boxing Day in in that blizzard and I thought City were really impressive. They were brilliant for 35 minutes, then it started snowing and they just shut the game down completely. West Brom had a couple of chances because it was so chaotic and I wrote that City, you know, is the sort of performance that we would normally say that's a performance of champions mm. and it looked like you would never have put money on after that game on them going and drawing with Burnley and not getting that club record 10th straight win. But well, I'll tell you what stood out, Rory is that he's going to become the new sick note, is Vincent Company. Mm-hmm. You know, losing him, Rory, is that's yeah. a massive blow because he is their ultimate leader. He's the guy that can handle the people like the Barneses for me. And when he's fit, he drives that back four forward. Having him and Torre, who Torre had completely, I'm sure you'd agree, West Brom and before, he'd completely changed his performances into the ones that we saw so often last year. Well, I, 
I thought Silver was the one. I think Silver's obviously in a great, great bit mm. of form. I might have to respectfully disagree with you on Vincent Company. I think you're right that they miss him because I'm not sure Mangala is quite. I think he's been targeted, Mangala. It was interesting against West Brom as well that Alan Irvin, who is not exactly Renus Michels, had told James Morrison to look for Berahino down Mangala's left hand side. And it worked three or four times for West Brom that. Teams are targeting Mangala. But in that, in that game last, yesterday, and I know Company wasn't there, but. Dean McKellis and Bangal have got to be good enough because basically Burnley were just sticking it in the box yeah. whenever they were in Manchester mm. City's half. The fullback had it and he just launched it into the box and they couldn't cope. And I know not many sides play that style of football, but you've got to be able to deal with that, haven't you? you well, you say that, but we've seen Arsenal begin to the same crime. We've seen Stoke got the better of them. We've seen it with Andy Carroll, you know, that he will cause you problems if you get the ball in. Okay, it's even better quality than most. But it's still, some of the teams are very vulnerable to just old-fashioned traditions that we haven't seen. We haven't seen a Wimbledon, you know, in the last 20 years. Mm. We, Wimbledon would just get the ball in from everywhere. I played against them. I played in the Millwall team that did it. We just got the ball out wide. Fullbacks would deliver. Wingers would deliver early as possible. Keepers would be found wanting, coming for crosses. We'd attack things. Crystal Palace done it to a certain degree with Brighton Wright. Solaco on one wing got it in as quick mm. as they could. So... There are teams that are slightly looking to do that a little bit more often. And I tell you what, you're finding the really classy teams are finding it hard but to Burnley, do But Burnley don't necessarily do that every week in, week out, do they? It's almost no, like they, they thought don't. they should do it against City. Saw the weakness, and Rory touched on it. You know, you see a weakness, you've got to be prepared to ask different questions of teams. If you think that that side is weak in that department of things coming into their box, do it. Just do it. You know what's really interesting about what Tony says is that he's right that I think teams have that there are teams now lower down the Premier League who've, who've looked at the kind of the orthodoxy that you, we've all got to pass it around and we've all got to be really you know play great this great technical football and got to be quite patient build up and they thought well if you look around the league look around Europe there's no there's not there's no great central defenders there's very few left mm. there's sort of four or five maybe across Europe who are top class central defenders who are kind of really indomitable in the air. And they thought, well, maybe this orthodoxy that we, we all have to do the same thing isn't right. And maybe we should try and mix things up just a little bit. And it's almost like, you, you look, I mean, Allardyce obviously was the, the manager who was famed for doing it. He's gone away from it a little bit because of the pressure he was under to do so at West Ham. But I think others are, are looking around and saying, right, we can have a go at this team in the air. But I think there's, there has to be an issue with City, central defensively, because I don't think Vincent Company is the panacea that he is dressed up as. I think Company's really vulnerable on the turn. I think he gets himself into poor positions. And I don't think he now is the, is, the, is the player he was three years ago. I think everyone looks at Company and says they need Company back. They do, but only does Mangala doesn't mm. appear to be ready for the Premier League. But I don't think Company makes that team absolutely unbeatable or anything like that. The, his impact has been massively exaggerated. We can't write off Manchester City, though, just for dropping two points at home, can we? No, we can't because they've got so much talent and they've got players that like the, the Silvers that can you know win you a game at a moment. I've seen Nasri do it. He can have a performance. and There's a number of players at City. But one thing's quite clear. The difference between Chelsea and City for me is that Chelsea will only concede really one goal, where City can concede two more often. And I think that ultimately is a big difference between the two teams. Tony, I'm going to stop you some breaking news. This is really <laughs> exciting. Uh, Julien Laurent has arrived oh. uh, fashionably late. Uh, lovely to meet you, Julien. How are you? I'm very good, boys. I'm sorry I'm late. <laughs> I um, just thought Rory would be late as well, so there was no point coming on time. Julian, you wouldn't be French unless you I know, late. that's very true. Jules, that's entirely fair. I am normally late for everything. I'm going to say, as an opening gambit, Julien, criticising someone else for not being here is bold, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> um, it is. It do, is. You, do you have any thoughts on the... Uh, uh, Man City Burnley game. 
Yes, I do. And, and I think I say probably every time I come here, actually, is complacency will cost them dearly at the end of the season. And, and I think for me, yesterday was all about complacency. They got in at half time to go up and they probably thought, this is it. We've won the game. You know, we know Chelsea have drawn because at half time by then they knew that they would be just one point behind if, if they won. And they just went out back for the second half thinking, it's okay. We and you could see the intensity dropped in their game massively from the City point of view in the second half. Was Burnley? We're already up for it in the first half, but they were even more up for it in the second half when they saw that, especially they scored the goal after two minutes straight after the restart. So, for me again, I can't understand the, the complacency that that City team and the City players have. Be- he's barely t- taken his coat off, and he's made more sense than Tony <laughs> Casquino and Rory Smith. Jules, can, can I ask you a question about Eliakwin Mandala? Go on, what what do the friends think of, Man- of Mandala? It's a tough one. He's when he's not good, like yesterday, we said that he's, he's more Belgian than French because he moved over there at five. <laughs> so we said that basically, when he's bad, he's Belgian. When he's good, he's French. He hasn't been very good so far this season, so he's been more Belgian than French. I think physically, he's got everything to be a top centre half. My my issue is, I think. He doesn't get the game. He doesn't understand it, tactically especially. I mean, yesterday, in that second half, it was just embarrassing to watch. And, and I think that by now, the, after six months in the Premier League, he should know better, you know, in terms of positioning, the, tactically. It's not just being strong and, you know, and fast and, you know, being able to, to get in the challenges and things like that. It's also, you know, football is about your brains and thinking. And I, and I, I just think that yesterday, especially, it was not thinking anything. Just to touch on Burnley, we've got to give them a lot of credit. You kind of th- feel that there are three teams that are worse than them and they'll survive. Well, I wouldn't go as far as I think they, they'll survive. I think what Sean Dice has got is a, a great group of characters. And that will give them a, as best as opportunity. And although I don't think Ings will get to 10 goals, I think he'll get to sort of 7 or 8. Yesterday, he was really the creator of what they, when they scored because of his ability to just keep running his position to and, cause problems. And does it make a mockery of all the other managers with massive squads saying we can't play two games so close together where Bernie named an un- unchanged lineup? Well, they did. But I think, you know, when you're playing in a football game, sometimes you're, you're there and you're, like Julian said, you're 2-0 up, you're cruising, and you suddenly, the start of the second half, they get a goal. When Boyd scores, now everybody thinks and senses, we could get something here. And that's how the game felt, didn't it? And every minute that ticked by, more and more, it looked like Burnley were going to get to 2-2. And when it got to 2-2, it looked like they were going to win it. And that, to me, was a pure sensing that there was something there from them. I mean, look, I've played many a game and had some big results at, at places as a player, playing for lower clubs, and you just feel it, it's there. It's that opportunity. Can you take it? And I thought Burnley there yesterday, as much as what we said about City falling apart or not, you know, the complacency of them as a team, which is right, you've still got to give credit for Burnley for being prepared to put in a performance to get something. Let's go to St James's Park, uh, Newcastle 3, Everton 2. I, I don't know if we should start off the pitch with all the rumours. Uh, it's an interesting thing about doing a podcast. By the time you listen to this, Alan Pardew may well be the Crystal Palace manager. We don't know. Rory, you've got your finger on the post and you're sort of near the north. Uh, do, do you, have you heard things on the grapevine in, in uh, the Yorkshire Dales? So there are certain people who seem to be ahead of others. Sherwood would be one, Pardew would be another. Uh, I know they've spoken, funnily enough, slightly more ambitiously to Vitor Pereira, who used to be manager of Porto, won two titles with Porto. Um, he, he was approached by Palace. That is an absolute fact that they have spoken to him. So they are scratching around. I think what's interesting is, I'd love to know, and I don't know the answer to this, I'd love to know how much of a role the potential new owners of Crystal Palace are playing in the appointment of the new manager. Because if, if they are 
at quite an advanced stage with the takeover talk. I think they probably have to be involved in, in, in the appointment process. In terms of the two that seem to be ahead of the others, I don't quite see why Alan Pardew would take it apart from sentimentality. I think he's on to a good thing at Newcastle where he only has to finish sort of 10th and he'll never get sacked. Palace is a, is a, obviously is a much smaller club than Newcastle, much smaller budgets, much less likely to, to do anything that would, that would boost Pardew's reputation. There is obviously a sentimental reason. I think if I was to put money on it, I'd probably say Sherwood. I think that would probably be quite a bad idea. But yeah, that's that's what I know, Max. You've you've drained me of knowledge. Um, <laughs> all right, you can go now. Uh, all you need is love, though, Tony, isn't it? That's why Pardew would go. I mean, I kind of agree with Rory. It seems like Pardew is sort of pretty untouchable there, given how much how much trouble he was in, and he still managed to keep his job. Well, I'd, I'd look at it and think, well, why would you want to leave a club where the the chairman has been really? He's backed his manager, hasn't he? He's kept him. He's you know, and then suddenly you're going to go to a club that has clearly not backed their managers. They They've lost them pretty quickly, and sometimes they've sacked them. So I, I can't, I can't really see it. I just can't see Alan Pardew going to Palace and Newcastle. He's done a lot, and he knows everybody there. And, and Palace is such a strange job because I think going for a someone who's going to come from abroad, like you mentioned, the Pereira coming in. I, I think Palace's DNA now, the group of players they got, is a group of players that actually just need to be organised, set up like Tony Pulis did. I don't think you can. But isn't that what Neil Warnock would have? Well, he's trying to do. Well, he, he tried to do, but it didn't quite work in the same manner. I just look at the players at Palace, and I don't see a, a genius in there. I don't see a guy that's going to turn you and win your football matches. I see everybody has to, you know, literally roll their sleeves up, and everyone digs in, and it's a group mentality. That's how I see Palace with the players they got. People like punching, you know, you know, been there for a while. I was so disappointed watching yesterday. I'm watching Sahar, how bad he looked. You know, he's really struggling at the moment, and I just think it needs to be that group. I mean, what's happened to Dwight Gale? You know, he saved the season at the end of last year, and he's not played any part. Every, you know, Warnock's didn't use him. Um, I find it a very strange situation, but I only see what the one that Rory said. I think Tim Sherwood would get it. Julian, I would go for Tony Cascarino, uh, <laughs> but if 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 Cas was not available for some reasons, you know, and what's was I find shocking is that it took them so long, five months almost, to realize that Warnock was useless. And that they got it wrong in the first place. Because I know when Pulis <laughs> left, they had to make it quick because the season was starting. But Warner, God, the guy is 66. He just can't manage a Premier League team anymore. So it took them a long time. But now I think they're going to take a bit more time to just find the right guy, whether that's Sherwood, you know, whether that's going abroad, I don't know. But like I said, you, and you're right, you, they need a bit more of discipline and organisation than they've had in the Warner where it was a bit like La La Land or something. I think the problem with Warnock was that I think they went for him because they thought he was he's cast in the same mould as Pulis. So they looked at mm. how well Pulis had done at just getting them organised, not playing particularly attractive football, although it was better than Pulis's football at Stoke. Just getting them organised, making them tough to beat. They, they looked at that and thought, right, we need to get someone who can do that. And hope, hope some of the players just didn't notice, maybe. Well, <laughs> almost <laughs> just put a cap on and the, the lessons had been learned so kind of well under Pulis that they just sort of carried on for another season. The problem is that Warnock, as well as looking a bit like the, um, the kind-hearted but steely matriarch of a soap opera family, <laughs> is also very much a kind of Aldi Tony Pulis. And I think, not that Aldi's not great value for money, obviously, and other budget supermarkets are available. The problem was that as soon as kind of it turned out that just replacing someone who was really good at being a, like a solid, hard-to-beat manager with someone who, who was kind of like okay 10 years ago at being a solid, hard-to-beat manager, as Jules says, they had to react then, or at least start the process then. 
so that you get to Christmas and you think, right, it's time for him to go. Here is his replacement lined up. He is the right candidate. I haven't thought at any point this season that Palace would go down. Uh, I worry for them now a little bit because I think it's not exactly the ideal kind of way to go to the second half of the season because you've got so much change there and that's not that's not a good thing. Let's just talk quickly about uh, Newcastle 3, Everton 2. Martinez is in trouble, isn't he? Well, what's so shocking for me is that how Everton have been, and I mentioned it in the paper today, is that everybody wants to play against them at the moment. You know, they're conceding goals, an alarming rate. I mean, I know that they've obviously had to deal with some injuries as well, but they've got a very experienced back four mm-hmm. when they're all there. If you look at Yagielka Distan, internationals, uh, Coleman international, Baines international, um, goalkeeper in Tim Howard, yes, he's injured. But I just find that the alarming rate of goals is very worrying for Everton because they're a great side going forward. When they've got everybody right, Everton can be a really good team. He's given lots of new contracts out at uh, Everton. Mm-hmm. People like Osman, rightly so. Bartley has signed a new deal. You've had Lukaku come in for £28 million. You've seen Samuetu, who wouldn't have come cheap. You've seen a lot of these things happen at the football club, and yet they're going through probably the the sort of poorest time they've had for a long while. David Moyes had them close to relegation once or twice, so I think we'd remember, but they managed to get back out of it. I think the worrying thing is now, the different from Moyes, is that Moyes' teams never got beat so easily, yeah. where Everton, this team, looks a little bit too like Wigan at their worst, worst things but, about Wigan. But you, I mean, we talked about Burnley being a bit direct. What's McGeady doing? Playing that pass? I mean, it's just... What's, what's Barkley doing as well? Yeah, true. On the, on the, third, on the callback goals. It's just... My issue is that it still it seems that it's with all those you know the the new signings and and the guy who is still looking for his best team and he keeps changing everything. Yeah. Yesterday, putting Barkley in front of your back four, surely it's not it's not the best thing you've come up with, you know, as a manager. And and he made the mistake on the callback because he's never been in that position because that's not where he plays. He no, surely plays you surely play. You want to run at people exactly, exactly. and you know you don't want him to defend on the edge of your box. You know when you're two one down, for example, away at Newcastle. So he's still looking, I think, for what his best team could be. Eto is a what, super sub, or should he start behind Lukaku or Lukaku on the bench and Kone up front? I think he's got a lot of options, and he's not sure exactly what his best team is. And, and I think you can see that on the pitch. As and well. it's unlucky when you spend that much money on somebody. There's luck involved into whether it really works or not. I suppose Jose's not often wrong, and Lukaku is starting to look like. I don't know, Rory, did you think that was money well spent when they I, spent it? My, my initial reaction was, and it's not as simple as this, and it's kind of a childish reaction, but for 28 million quid, you could either get Romelu Lukaku, because Chelsea drove a hard bargain. I personally think Everton probably could have pushed it a little bit further in that negotiation. I'm not quite sure why they were so willing to meet Chelsea's asking price. But anyway, I always thought at the time, could you not, for that money, have got like an £18 million striker and like a £10 million player somewhere else? Does Lukaku, to me, is young, very promising, very powerful, all that, but 28 million quid for a club like Everton was an awful lot of money on one player. I, I wonder now with Lukaku whether, and again, it's sort of Todd psychology, whether he was so impressive last season because he was playing to prove something to Chelsea. He now doesn't need to prove anything because he's got kind of, his, he is the big star now. And I wonder whether that's just robbed him of that little final like, edge that strikers need. And he just looked a little bit inhibited at the moment. I've seen him a few times this season, Everton. He's obviously physically all still there, but there's not that same kind of instinct that there was last season. What I would say, Rory, that when he spent his year on loan at West Brom, he was in and out of the team. A lot of people actually forget that he was substitute a lot for West Brom at that particular time, and he scored goals. He did it against United, didn't he? Come on, and he had a run towards the end of the season where he come on the, off the bench every time and kept getting goals. And then he went to Everton, and like Rory said, he, he pushed himself to a sort. It felt like a new level, an opportunity to prove people wrong. And I don't think he'd done as well 
as what people on the outside really believed he did at Everton. Mm -hmm. Everton were a good side. And I think he had his moments where he did excel. But over the course of it, I think still a lot of people, even the Evertonians, were a bit... We've just paid twenty-eight million for Lukaku, really, and I think that's the general feeling. I think that was the feeling not only at Everton but on the outside, and I still stay with that. I think he was. Well, they paid way too much for him. I think they paid way too much for him, given their kind of economic situation. I think if you're if you're a, a Man City and you desperately want a striker, you want a specific striker. You can pay twenty-eight million quid for mm. someone like that. That's fine. I think for Everton, given their weaknesses in terms of the squad depth, that is a, a natural function of their kind of economic situation. I think it was a strange thing to do. But the other thing that's, that's interesting, and, and Cass mentioned the defending, like Jad Yelter and Distan have been probably the, the longest, what, they are probably the longest serving central defensive partnership currently still in the Premier League, if you see what I mean. Um, that's gonna, they're going to stop being good at some point. Sylvan Distan's about 70. Like, that is, yeah. is going to come home to roost at some point. But the other thing is that, and again, that's, it, it, it's a theory rather than a, a fact, but you do wonder whether Martinez last season benefited, and I love Roberto Martinez to a slightly dangerous level, but you do wonder whether he, he benefited last season from, from a back four that David Moyes put together. Does it look this season a lot more like a Roberto Martinez back four, if we're all completely honest with ourselves? Jermaine Genus, just like Julian, two of the game's great thinkers, were, were saying on, on Match of the Day and this podcast just now that it's individual mistakes. But there comes a point where you make so many individual mistakes that there has to be a pattern and that has to track back to the coaching. Is Roberto Martinez, you say that's your footballing man crush? Uh, I've got loads of them. Oh. Loads of them. Am you I must have loads of Gilfie, them. Gilfie right? Sigurdsson is mine. Oh, <laughs> I mean, who doesn't, who doesn't love Sigurdsson? And he'd be such a tender lover as well. Wouldn't he? I think he really would. Tony, have you, have you got... Do you not have a footballing man crush? Diego Costa. Yes. Diego <laughs> <laughs> Costa? No I mean, he's, he's nothing if not rugged, I guess. Oh, Julien? Nice to be a Hebra. Yeah. Ibrahimovic, yeah. <laughs> any time, any day. Rory Smith is actually one of my man crush. Is he really? Lovely football player. Is he a Lovely. good player? Can he do style a bit? Style of like Berbatov style. You know, he's a bit nonchalant. But, Lazy. Yeah. But lethal. <laughs> Lazy is the word. Yeah. On a cold night in Stoke. So, yeah, Matt, just, just, while we're, just while we're doing this, I also have a bit of a man crush on Jules. So I will, I will say... You know I'm starting to get one. With, he, well, he's a very handsome <laughs> man. Isn't he? We, isn't we, should he? All, yeah. we should all just admit he that. He just bowled in here, sat down, was so professional. Unlike me and Cass, uh, Jules does not have skin complaints at the moment. So <laughs> if you need a player, Max, in, in one of your many football teams or yeah. charity games, yeah. you can call me anytime. The Jules okay, is, I've played football with Lee Sharp, the former England international and uh, Yorkshire-based publican. Mm -hmm. And Julian Laurent is the best footballer I have ever played with. Genuinely. Are you looking for a club? Because I captain Polytechnic Fours in the Southern Amateur League. Yes. And I'm always looking for players. Yeah. <laughs> Are you free Saturday afternoons? I am. Okay. Are you? Are you not on BT? Where? What on position? On Sunday I'm on BT Sport. I can play anywhere. What is anywhere BT Sport? I've never heard of. Let's talk about Hull. Let's talk about Hull Leicester before we go on to Jose saying that everyone's against him again. Just because it was just a brilliant last fifteen minutes of Leicester just panicking. You know, just football at some of its brutal league. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Two best, that's what I thought. Tony? It reminded me of a good few years back Millwall went to Brighton on New Year's Day and we played and we got absolutely battered and we won 1-0 and I remember looking at the pitch after uh, after the game and you could see that the second half that was so dug up at one end and the other end was quite quite good <laughs> terrain you know it looked quite good okay it wasn't 45 minutes of Leicester defending for their lives but it was 15 minutes and wow did Nigel Pearson need it and it's amazing that Stevie Bruce goes to Sunderland gets yeah. a result against his former club likewise Pearson does the same thing and against all the odds everything went for him that day you know yesterday we looked at it and, and City rode their luck and they've hit the post hole and probably played as well as they did at Sunderland and had as many opportunities if not more and Bruce even mentioned it didn't he he said in the 18 what two years he's been there or whatever he, he said that's the best we've played or most created with being in front of goal. And, and interestingly, course. Leicester should have definitely beaten Spurs two days earlier, mm. shouldn't they? Exactly, yeah. It's, it's just the beauty of, especially that period where you play two games in two days mm. where you know you could look so good one day and then you know, not, not so good the next day if you play at home or away. And, and it's, just, it's just brilliant. And, and, and that, that might be the result that saves Leicester. That saves Pearson for sure. But mm. maybe even, you know, at the end of the season when we look back on Leicester staying up, that could be the game that decided it all. He's a good player, Mahrez, as well, isn't he? He's a good player. Like he was, he was good in the French second division, but you never really thought that he would be good enough for that kind of level. And, and mm. you know, and Leicester is struggling and he's just one player in a struggling squad. But still, the last two games, even against Spurs, it was really, really good, I thought. And but he's got something, he's got a sort of nerve about him, I think. That's what, what's quite impressive. Yeah, he's a very arrogant Frenchman. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's got that kind of, I suppose it's courage and it's fearlessness that he just goes at people. And it, it, it maybe is quite a French trait it, that he doesn't feel as though anyone's better than him. He wants the ball all the time. Mm-hmm. And it, it, yeah, you might say that maybe it should be too much. And, you know, there will be times where he's rubbish on the ball and he makes the wrong choice or things like that. But also, I think that's a sign of good players when you want, or at least confident players, you want confidence. When every time your team is going forward, you want the ball because you know you could be decisive with a goal or with a great cross or with the ball through or something like that. And, and I think Leicester need, and then all the other well, struggling teams as well. Yeah, different. You know, they've exactly. been on a horrendous run. So having someone want the ball all the time is a big plus. I remember a lad in, in France, and I'm, I'm sure Julian remember him, uh, Capio, Stéphane Capio. Yeah. And he was so gifted. I saw him, we won at PSG one day, and I just joined the club, but I didn't play, and I was in the stands, and I was, how on earth is he playing for Nancy? He was that good in the game. And I, I remember watching him, we were, he could win us a game, we were at the wrong end of the table. And he, it was that type of thing that you're talking about, with you know, a player where you ju- he just wanted it all the time. 
So when it was great, he could turn and win you a football game and everyone would be packed. But there weren't many days like that. That's <laughs> the only problem. I said to him, how's he, you know, has he not planned for it? He said, you'll find out in three months' time. <laughs> and right. about three months later, it was true. You know, he didn't do it enough. All right, every week we have a debate and this week the debate is on conspiracy theories. This is what Jose said. There is a campaign against Chelsea. I don't know why there is this campaign. I do not care. Everybody knows it was a penalty. Um, this is Fabregas getting tripped in the box. Uh, the referee made a mistake. People make mistakes, and he made a big mistake. He, that's Anthony Taylor, is a good referee and a good guy. He is young. He's 36. He has years of, and years of football ahead of him, but it is a big mistake. Uh, it was a big mistake, wasn't it? It was a penalty. I mean, the, the linesman for me is, is, is more afoot than Anthony Taylor. I, I'm not sure Taylor had a great view of it, and it was the way he was, the way he was standing and where Fabregas and Taggart were. I think it was difficult for the referee to see it, really. From where he was, the linesman, though, there's, there's no excuse for him. I just love Jose, though. I love Jose, because when Cahill should have been sent off for the dive against Hull, you know, Jose was very happy to say, nah, it's nothing and everything. And now he doesn't get a pen. You know, when Aguero didn't get a pen at Southampton for City, Pellegrini didn't say at the end of the game, there's a campaign against us, we're not getting pens. Aguero got booked for diving when it was a clear pen. If Jose had won yesterday, he would have never said he's like campaigning to rise. So, so, but why do we buy it? I mean, why, why are referees, why do we all believe it? Because we know every referee, after every game comes out, so Allardyce came out and said, that offside goal was the worst decision ever. Like Paul Lambert said on the Delft sending off, well, I've just seen it, so I can't really comment. I don't understand what that means. I mean, he had, no, I didn't see it. I've just seen it. How long do you need? Like, you need like, 24 hours' time, I'll tell you what I think about it. Why do we, why, you know, because no manager ever comes out and goes, yeah, we were lucky there. It was the right decision. You know, I don't, I just can't understand why... It, why, why does it work? I think it's Jose Rounds. Whatever the rent is, it always works because it's Jose Mourinho, because it's Chelsea, because it's the top of the league, because they probably want to win the league and because that's the story, that's the agenda and, and Jose, like, like Wenger, you know, like you know, the yeah. big manager, sets the agenda. Do you know why it is? Tell because us. there's no specific sports newspapers in England. That's, that's the answer to that question. What we need as journalists, and this is, this is kind of a mayor culpa, is you need you essentially need a back page lead, don't you? You need a you need a story to put on your back page, and it's really helpful if instead of it, Chelsea last night drew one all at Southampton, it's Jose Mourinho last night roared. So whatever managers say has a disproportionate weight in England. That their their views are given this sort of enormous primacy in the way we cover the sport, which doesn't happen. It does happen to an extent abroad, but it doesn't happen quite so much abroad. That that if you read an Italian match report or I would guess a French match report, although I don't want to speak for an entire nation, it doesn't necessarily start with what the manager thought. That What the manager thought of the game is, is separate, almost, to what the journalist thought of the game. So that's why journalists go to football matches. It's because we, theoretically, are there to tell fans of the two clubs involved how well their team played. The way we cover it, on the, in, back, in a world where we, we need a back-page leak, is we essentially present what the manager thought of the game ahead of what we thought of the game, which I personally think is really dangerous. And that's only partly because I think my opinion is really important. But it leads to stuff like this, where, where Mourinho, we all know what he's doing. Every journalist who was at the game yesterday will know yeah. that Mourinho is saying there was a campaign against Chelsea. Just what he'd really like is to pressure the referees into giving decisions to Chelsea. That's all he's trying to do. It's kind of seven-year-old psychology. It's pathetic. But will it work? Will next yeah, time it work because the referee next it, time won't book a Chelsea player for diving? It will be perceived to have worked. That's Mourinho's. Mourinho's a brilliant coach. He doesn't need to do this 
stupid stuff. Mm. Every manager does it. Most managers don't do it nearly so well as Jose. That's that's the, the the best way of summing it up. Whatever happens, it will be perceived to have worked. Does at some I mean, point Mourinho will get a decision that goes for him, and it will be the oh, is this his mind games thing? And it's complete nonsense. Yeah. It's complete nonsense, and it would be better if we all just decided not to talk about referees. There's also another problem, isn't there, that journalists, uh, after the game, if you're standing, whoever's standing with Jose or whoever's standing with whatever manager doesn't take them to task because you want to get on with that manager because if you get on with that manager, they'll invite you back and you'll do better in your career. Well, yeah. possibly, yeah, but also the, you've got a time factor. That's what people don't take into consideration is that you, you have got, after a game, 40 yeah. minutes yeah. to speak to those managers, to take down those quotes and then to rewrite a thousand-word match report. You've got 40, 40, 45 minutes to do that. You don't have time to be to play Jeremy Paxman. You just don't. There's a, there's a slight bravery as well from journalists in England as well, because as as the boys would tell, take France for example, it's regional newspapers. So a lot of the guys, the regional journalists, know the managers. If you go work for Marseille, it's you, you know they'll personally deal with them on a daily basis. Where okay, lots of journalists in England are a bit more brave, aren't they? With some of the headlines, they don't care about offending sometimes a manager. Mm-hmm. Look, every manager is doing this. I mean, Mark Hughes, I find the most hilarious. I think Mark Hughes gets away with absolute murder in some of his post-match comments. The way he sees things, and he just literally will go everything for his football club, which is pretty much what everybody's doing. You know, they all say we're unlucky, we don't get the decisions. This, you know, they will question everything. No one's ever going to say that if a decision went against them, that the referee was right. I don't think I've heard that once this year or any other year. That's just the way it is. We live in a mad... We have a real... I feel the concept of football and refereeing is ridiculous sometimes, where we have all these millions of people watching an incident that a referee can't see. He's got a split second to make a decision, like on Fabregas. I, I know it's a penalty. We all know it's a penalty. We can see it because we're also getting images a second time so quickly. We have a concept that a referee can actually think that... Like we are seeing it, you know, they, they got, they're not getting opportunities. It's an impossible job, referee. It's, a, it's it? an impossible situation for a referee. There was a great example of that yesterday, on, on, if you watch Match of the Day, where Jonathan Pierce was doing the commentary on the Southampton-Chelsea game. And his initial reaction was that Fabregas slipped. And he said on the commentary, said, and, and which is very brave of him to leave it in, because normally the, the BBC edit their mistakes out. But he said, he slipped, he slipped. If you look at him, he slipped. And then gradually, it was like, like the dawning of time, you watched <laughs> him realise that he'd made a mistake and that it was actually a penalty. Oh, don't we all wish Jonathan Pearce was commentating on the dawn of time? Oh, that'd be amazing. Know. I've got a bit in this section called Quick Hits, everybody. Are you ready for the Quick Hits? Uh, it begins with you, Julien. Yep. Uh, Spurs point against United. Lucky or well-earned? A bit of both. I think they were lucky in the first half. Lloris made some good saves, but United were on top. And then they played better in the second half. Physically, they looked in better shape than, than United. And I think a draw is a fair point for, for both teams. Uh, Lloris is obviously Spider-Man. He's amazing. But, but Fazio, who's got a lot of stick... I don't know how quick this point can be, but Fazio and Vertonghen have now got some ridiculous record. Of True, and Fazio is a liability, man. He was better in the United box than in his own box yesterday. I was at the game, and it was like, I couldn't believe it that that guy, really... I mean, he, well, I thought he played well. Did you? Maybe I'm comparing oh, it to his previous the performances. The mistakes he made. Well, um, they played the high line. You could even see in Vertonghen's eyes. And the, the good thing at White Hart Lane, when you're a journalist, is that you're standing so close to the pitch that you see everything you're right behind the benches as well. And you could see sometimes Vertonghen's looking at us like, what is he doing? And Pochettino, three or four times, was even looking at his assistant and going like, what, what just happened? And... and he, he almost scored twice. Oh, he could have scored twice. One, he was a bit short, and the second one, De Gea made a save on a, on a left foot half volley. 
But defensively, I thought it was it was really bad. And I don't know, he looks like a robot. He looks like <laughs> he's got such wide shoulders and then a tiny waist. He's like eight sides of trousers, but then massive, massive shoulders. It's really weird. It's all, your, all the French robots are hourglass figures. Right? <laughs> can, like we, can we can we get some some sort of study done on what what kind of waist footballers <laughs> take? That'd be really interesting. Yeah, the, the waist of footballers. Yeah. I wanted to do My, a feature on the size of footballers' feet. Uh, but um, no one has ever taken me up on this statistical small, analysis. My, yeah. Very small feet. My, my missus has got an hourglass figure. Mm-hmm. The trouble is all the sand's gone to the bottom. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth listening all that time just for that, wasn't it? Uh, Rory, West Ham's defeat to Arsenal, their first home defeat since August. Uh, Arsenal's seventh win in the last nine. What does 2015 hold for these two teams? Quick uh, hit. West Ham finishing seventh or eighth, Arsenal finishing fourth. Uh, but I want to talk about Alex Song. And the disallowed goal, yeah, not do. because of the stupid controversy about like whether it was offside or not. Does he, these things happen? Get over it, deal with it. But I like the fact that he didn't want to celebrate against Arsenal, but that meant that he didn't get that moment where the goal was disallowed, where he has to stop celebrating. Yeah, yeah. So true. he had to stop celebrate. He had to. He didn't celebrate. Then he kind of had to start <laughs> celebrating to make the point that he couldn't celebrate anymore. <laughs> and I thought that was that was that's my favourite moment of the year. A very good observation, um, Tony. Is Gus Poyet right to state that playing on the twenty eighth of December, two days after Boxing Day, quote is a disgrace? Um, yeah, I think. Well, well, the only thing I'd describe as disgrace is the the nil nil draw that Villa and Sunderland served up. I mean, how many of Sunderland had? They've had a ridiculous amount of nil nils this year. The game was just inevitable before it even started that this would be the outcome. And uh, two days after, same for everybody else. I've been it, I've done it. I actually really enjoyed that period over Christmas of playing so quickly. No, Is that because what were your opta? How many kilometres did you cover in a game? I t- well, we didn't change so much. Teams changed so many personnel. So really, you know, though you're playing two days later... You might find that most teams are having four or five changes. You'd normally get the same 11 out every two, you know, well, a boxing day, then two days later. And if you're next to Teddy Sheringham, what do you need to do? Just, it'll no. just, you'll just get the ball anyway, I've done yeah. all his running. Oh, is that right? Yeah, apparently. <laughs> um, uh, Julien, your reaction, please, to recent comments by uh, everyone's favourite former Fulham boss, Felix Magat. Quote, English players find it difficult to train twice in one day, once a week. For me, it's an absolute joke that a professional sportsman cannot train twice in one day. Is he right? about English players or players playing in England. Coming Is Felix McGat right about anything? <laughs> That's it. Coming from a guy who wanted to treat an uh, armstring problem with cheese, I just, I just can't take it seriously. I think, you know, I saw some of the Spurs players yesterday who were saying that Pochettino was really, really hard at training. They trained twice a day and, and that they were loving it. And Benjamin Stambouli, for example, my fellow Frenchman, was saying like he's, he's one of the best coaches I've ever worked with. And I, and I don't think English players are foreign players in England have any problems by training twice a day I just think a lot of managers just do one training session a day and some players get used to that and that's it but coming from my gut I wouldn't I wouldn't take it seriously at all uh, Rory a quick hit uh, the breaking news of Torres going back to Atletico Madrid signing for Milan and then going on loan to Atletico is that what's happening? This is all very sad isn't it I think it's easy to laugh at Torres it's easy to kind of see in him some sort of karmic retribution or something but when you strip it all down what's happened to him over the last three years I, I find genuinely sad that a player who was that explosive that impressive at his best has faded so quickly and so dramatically he won't come to life again at Atletico he'll be, be nice for him to be kind of in a place where he will automatically be loved but his demise makes me makes me very sorrowful at this time of year Alright then well let's uh, on that happy note let's uh, <laughs> let's review 2014 and preview 2015 in about two minutes
Uh, the highlight of your footballing year, Rory, we already know, is Alex Song not being able to celebrate and then having to celebrate a goal that didn't. I think that's yeah, <laughs> wasn't really... given. Uh, the highlight of your oh. football year, Tony Cascarino. Um Luton coming up from the conference. Just because I felt they were really hardly done by when uh, the football league sent them down, and I thought it was a club that you know gets ten thousand, watch them regular, and I just felt fair play to John Still. I know well has done absolutely fantastic there. The best thing about going to Kenilworth Road is you do when you walk into the away ends, you actually walk through basically in people's houses like you can see in yeah. their living room and kitchen window it's brilliant like it's actually most times that's been the best part of going to Kenilworth Road uh, mine is Cambridge United also going up from the conference 2-1 at home to Gateshead at Wembley yeah. oh brilliant um, Julian your footballing highlight of 2014 France had the World Cup and, and the prospect of 2016 I think France had a very good World Cup it was after everything that happened in the past for us I think it was so good to see Didier Deschamps and the boys doing so well and, and the World Cup is so big as well that's why, that's why I would go for that. My highlights, we lost in the quarterfinals against Germany, but overall it was such an encouraging and reassuring tournament, especially with the Euros at home in, in 2016, that has to be our highlight, and, and, and hopefully we can build on that as well. Can I have Germany against Brazil as my low light? Uh, you can. Most people, I'm sure, when, when the sort of year in review bits come out in the paper, will say that that was kind of the, the most seismic result of the season and, you know, history-making result, blah, blah, blah. But I just found that... Like, it was quite cringe-inducing to watch, do you know what I mean? Like, you were a bit like, oh, my God, this is terrible. Yeah. And it's a World it, Cup, yeah, it's Well, weird. I was watching it with my missus, and she was, she was like, I can't... She, she said after about, sort of, 40 minutes, I can't watch this anymore. This is, this is just <laughs> cruel. Like, it was kind of a programme of men kicking a puppy. It's the semi-final of a World Cup. You don't want a team to lose 7-1. I don't want that in a World Cup semi-final. I want it tight. I enjoyed Holland-Argentina more because there were no goals. There shouldn't be goals in a World Cup semi-final. That's my point. Tony, low lights. Low light, um... Aston Villa. <laughs> <laughs> you can say that. Villa. You can say that every year since 1981. Oh, can you? No. <laughs> I think the Aston Villa faithful—they had one goal at the whole end, haven't they? This season to embrace. Imagine being a season to get older at the Villa, and you've seen one goal at the home end this season. Does it come a time when actually it becomes? I remember watching a Cambridge United game, right, home to Cardiff City, and David Ellery was the ref, and Cardiff City had one man sent off just before half-time against ten men, and then they had another man sent off. Okay, so we're playing nine men. Then they have another man sent off for deliberate handball on the goal line, and we missed the penalty, right? So for the last 20 minutes, we're playing eight men, and it finished nil-nil. And to be honest, I kind of wanted it to finish nil-nil by that, that time. There's a masochistic... Pain. Being an Aston Villa fan, much like being a Spurs fan, it's sort of all about nostalgia, really. There's nothing about the now. It's all about how good it used to be. Well, I, I looked at some stats, and Villa had scored two years ago 48 goals in 38 games, or 47 goals in 38 games. Then last year, they got 39 goals in 38 games, and this year, they got 11. And it's just so painful. It's not like it's something new. And I, I played for the Villa. It's a fantastic football club. And I just can't endear myself to the way that Paul Lambert plays his style that is just getting one goal is the absolute max for them. Junior, your low line has to be Spain. Because it's so sad that such a great team... I mean, the cycles always come to an end and you knew that at some point Spain would stop winning. They couldn't win forever. But after being so good to be knocked out in the first round of a World Cup... And yes, they've been a bit unlucky and if David Silva scores, it's two, they're 2-0 up against the Dutch. And it's, it's, but he didn't score. 
So and at the end they, they were knocked out in in the in the group stages and it was so I think it's so sad. You lot did it in 2010, didn't you? In, um, I can't remember. Three of the last I four. I can't remember any of that. I just can't remember <laughs> any of that. But yeah, my lot has to be for Spain because I, I fell for them really. Okay, finally, one footballing tip and one footballing hope for 2015. Rory Smith. So my tip would probably be Frank de Boer to come to the Premier League, the Ajax manager. Mm-hmm. It's about time that he did that. One hope, maybe Lee Mason not being Lee Mason anymore. <laughs> that might be my hope. I don't like Lee Mason. I don't like criticising referees, but I really don't like Lee Mason. Oh, you're going to say, I'm not one for criticising referees. <laughs> no, I'm not. I gen- but Lee Mason is terrible. I gen- no, I genuinely I hate this thing. I do hate, my- in fact, that might be my hope, that we all kind of grow up a little bit and remember that referees do make mistakes. Now, that's not like going to change unless you replace them with robots, robots built to look like Federico Fazio. <laughs> so that might be my hope, that we could get away from this stupid conversation about referees and it's all their fault. It's just an easy way out for managers, and we all know that, and it's transparent, it's pathetic. Good. But my other hope might be that Lee Mason stops. Okay, so your, your hope in a short form is to stop criticising referees, but to criticise one referee. No, I, uh, think, <laughs> I know, it's to stop criticising referees. And in the case of Lee Mason, I think the best way to stop, to ensure that we do not criticise him, is for him not to be there anymore. Tony, your uh, footballing, a tip and a hope. Tip, Sheringham will be a Premier League manager, Teddy okay. Sheringham. My hope, I'm his assistant. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, my hope is... Going in 2015, that we can be a lot braver on penalty decisions because I think that's the one thing that I have a real extra gripe with in football is the way that penalties are used as a massive weapon to win football matches where most of them are very debatable. So you want more or fewer penalties? No, just I just want better decisions on them. for. So tugging, I, tugging yeah, in the box. I ho- it ain't going to happen next year, but I certainly hope technology does come in for penalty decisions. It ain't going to happen in 2015, but I hope we get a lot closer to making that decision. Uh, Julia, finally, a tip and a hope. My tip is that PSG are going to knock out Chelsea in the Champions League. Like 16, mm-hmm. boom. And my hope is that Jürgen Klopp is going to come to the Premier League next summer. Please, Jürgen, I know you're listening. I know you're a big fan of the podcast. Bundesliga is like Care Bear League. This is not real football. Come to the real football. Come to the real league, the, the best league in the world. Come to the Premier League. You know, Arsenal is made for you. Just just come and, and join us. All right, that's it. What's yours? Oh, what? My, yeah, what's yeah. your tip? And <sighs> my tip is that, uh, uh, is that Cambridge United will finish. No, come on, a real tip, come on. What do you mean a real tip? A real, a real tip. tip. Yeah, a, real a, real tip. tip. <laughs> a real tip is that Julien Laurent will make his debut for Polytechnic <laughs> Fours in the Southern Amateur League away at Winchmore Hill, which is a tough game. We got it on January it's the 10th. where I live. Yeah? Yeah. What position do you play? Up front, midfield, at the back. Are you quick? Anyway. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm serious about this. Yeah, I'm always looking yeah, for players. Yeah. I, I found my goalkeeper, right? I was doing a uh, <laughs> cooking show called, I can't remember what it was, a Channel 4 cooking show. Baker? What's cooking? No, no, it wasn't. Um, no, it wasn't. Ba- What's cooking? It was for real low-grade minor Z-listers. <laughs> and so they ran out of them, so they asked me to do it. I, I cooked a pork schnitzel. But there was one guy eating a pot noodle. And it was funny because there was so much great f- food there. So I had a chat to him. I said, look, you know, you know we're chatting away. Do you like football? He said, oh, I love football. He used to play in goal for, for Shrewsbury as a kid with Joe Hart. And now he's Whoa. my keeper, Polytechnic Force. Whoa. So, you know, so that's, that's, I'm always, when I'm working, I'm looking for signings. <laughs> so, my hope is that Julien Laurent makes his debut for Polytechnic Force. And my hope, uh, hope one, is that my Australian girlfriend doesn't force me to move to Australia. Uh, and hope two is that everyone just gets along. That is it for this week. Ava 2014, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast on iTunes and Player FM for Android, do it immediately. Uh, thanks very much to Rory Smith, Tony Cascarino, Julien Laurent. Thank you. Uh, what are you doing nice. New Year's Eve? I'm not, it's not an invite. <laughs> Come over, big party with friends in the Cotswolds. Oh, 
Delightful. Yeah. Um, my missus is working. She's coming back. We're going for a Chinese. And then we're going to the pub to see the new year in. Jolly good. Uh, right, remember to check out the times.co.uk. Members get exclusive football, rugby and cricket highlights free as part of your subscription. If you're not a member yet, take advantage of the £1 digital trial by searching Time Sport Online. Good news for you. Gab Marcotti will be back next week. Happy New Year. Your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.